Welcome to the podcast, Perspective of the Mind, or how to get unstuck when you feel stuck. Perspective of the Mind, how to get unstuck when you feel stuck. Host, Jana Dimitrova. Everything provided on this podcast is solely for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes. The information provided shall not be considered diagnostic, treatment of mental health conditions, therapy, or anything similar, and under any circumstances shall not replace medical or mental health treatment. The opinions of the host or guests are solely the views of the individuals and can be changed at any time. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the sixth episode of the podcast Perspective of the Mind or How to Get Unstuck When You Feel Stuck. My next guest is an anxiety patient and an anxiety doctor. What I really love about him is the fact that his expertise in anxiety comes from so many different places. On one side, he has a degree in medicine, in neuroscience, in development psychology, and he personally suffered from anxiety for so long. And after pursuing the conventional methods for healing of anxiety with very little success, he decided to take the things in his own hands. On the other side, he is a certified yoga teacher and meditator, and he was a professional stand-up comedian. That's not a joke. So it's not only about science, guys, but also about spirituality and his personal journey of healing anxiety. It is such a great pleasure for me to introduce to you the founder of the revolutionary approach for healing of anxiety, Dr. Russell Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be able to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm so glad that the next minutes I will spend with you. And I'm so glad that you also agree to share your knowledge with my audience. Thank you, thank you once again. Uh, this episode is going to be very special to me because as you already know, I personally, I also have suffered from anxiety for a lot of time. Yeah, it's such a popular topic nowadays, right? So it's, yeah. it's like a very, very special episode for me. And um, let's just help people with our knowledge, with, uh, with sharing our journeys. Let's dive into that. My sure. first question will be, what is, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? How okay. can someone distinguish fear from anxiety? Okay, so fear is something that happens right now. So if I walk outside of my house and I am trampled by a herd of elephants and they're coming at me, that's fear because that's happening right now. Now, if last night I'm in my bed worried that I'm going to walk out the door and get trampled by elephants, that's anxiety. So fear is happening right now. Anxiety, the thing about anxiety is you can tell yourself, can I wait? Can I wait? If you can wait 10 seconds, it's anxiety. It's not fear. And probably a lot of people are asking themselves why I started exactly with this question. And there is a reason for that. I so much believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that fear is kind of our natural state of being. So if somebody, let's say, point a gun to me, 
right? Of course, I'll get fearful right now. My body will react, my mind, my body will react, right? Sure. While I believe that anxiety, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that anxiety is not our natural state of being. Anxiety is like living in the future while projecting our past problems and traumas into the future, really trusting them. Yeah. And I believe that's important for us to distinguish because if we know that we're in an anxiety state, then we can come back to the now moment where I believe it's the only moment where peace exists, right? And Yeah, and it's the only moment we can change things too. You can't heal yourself if you're stuck in the past trauma or the future projections of worry. So fear, you know, when you say is fear our natural state, I think that we definitely have a fear bias in our brains and that comes from evolution. If we weren't afraid, we, we wouldn't yeah, exactly. be able to pass our genes along. So there is that nature. It's almost like a philosophical question though, is like fear our, our nature or is love our nature? I mean, really it's a combination of both really. And most likely it's a combination of both. I would yeah, say. sure. I would say depending on what your situation is and what your and what your history was, how your childhood was. If you grew up in a in a country that was full of trauma, you know, chances are you're going to lean more towards the fear side. You know, and if you grew up with a a healthy attached parent or family system in a country that didn't have a lot of trauma, you're probably more going to lean more toward the love side. But fear and love are are both pretty big parts of us. Exactly. And before we talk about the exact steps that somebody can take in order to come to the now moment where the peace exists, I read in your book, by the way, for those, those of the listeners who haven't read the book, that's the book, Anxiety Rx. I really recommend it, that you say that anxiety is not a disease, is not a weakness, and it's not a feeling. And I so mm-hmm. much believe that it's like a breakthrough in the psychology area if it's not a feeling then what is it anxiety is really anxious thoughts so this is the example that i give to people i say if say i have two 15 year olds in my medical practice that day uh, a boy and a girl and i go in and i tell the girl you might be pregnant well her cortisol will go up her adrenaline will go up she'll get probably quite frightened and she believed that thought Now, if I go in and I say to the boy, hey, John, you might be pregnant, he's just going to laugh. So anxiety in and of itself is just the anxious thoughts. And And they don't hurt. What hurts is when we believe the thought and it goes into our body and we start creating all sorts of you know, fear mechanism in the body, adrenaline, uh, heart beating faster, blood pressure going up. So anxiety to me is just anxious thoughts. It's not painful. What is painful is this alarm that's in our body that came typically from childhood, typically from threat. The alarm in our body is what we feel. So I make a distinction between the alarm in the body, which is basically old, the remnant of old trauma, and the anxiety of the mind. Because the anxiety of the mind, we don't have to believe these thoughts, but when the body gets involved and the body believes it, that's when that's when it starts to become really painful. Uh, how can we find this alarm in the body? Is yeah, it it's great, one of the same great question. place for everybody or it's different? In different it's different. Ways? Yeah, it's different. I think it's it's what I do with people is I take them into, I say, what do you worry about? Some people say, I worry about my health. 
It's like, okay, well, let's go into your health. Let's, what are you worried about? I'm worried I have cancer. Okay, well, let's pretend right now that the doctor is telling you you have cancer. Where do you feel that in your body? And people will say, well, I feel it up in my throat. It's a pressure or a pain and, and uh, it feels constricted and, or I feel it in my chest and it feels like a burning. It feels like a burning pressure. It's finding that alarm sensation in your body that's really important because we can use that alarm sensation to kind of track back into the kind of the deeper parts of your brain where it started. And then we can actually work on changing those deeper parts of your brain because most anxiety is really the state of alarm that's in our body and the deeper parts of our brain. And we don't get to it just by talking about it. So that's why I wrote the book. It's, it's like we have to get into this alarm sensation in our body and when we do that, we're actually getting at the root cause of the problem in the first place, rather than just trying to fix our thoughts and, and treat our mind. Because the analogy that I draw is kind of like being in a rowboat and there's a hole in the boat and it's filling up with water. We can bail water out of that. And the, the, the water coming up is kind of like the anxiety. We can bail water out, which is kind of like thinking about it. But unless we go under and go deep and, and patch that hole in the bottom of the boat, which is the alarm that's stored in our body, typically from old childhood pain that wasn't resolved, then we fix it at its source. Otherwise, we're just going to be bailing water for the rest of our lives. Exactly. And as a person who has been suffering from anxiety, as I mentioned, it was such a pivoting moment for me, realizing that basically the anxiety, the biggest part of it is just the bad energy that is stored in, in our bodies. Because we can go to talk therapy a lot, right? And yeah. talk, I, I'm not saying it's bad. Talk no. therapy help, helps to some extent. It has its place. It, it has its yes, place exactly. Sure. It helps us to like to gain consciousness, to connect the dots in life, let's say, or to see clearly in the dust. But I realized that the pain was still there. And that's why, that's why I'm so grateful that you came up with this absolutely, in my opinion, revolutionary yeah. approach for um, addressing the body and healing the body, the energy that is inside the body. And you yeah. said that for everybody is different. Where is your um, alarm, Dr. For Ray? me, it's, it's in my solar plexus where my ribs meet in the front. You know, So for me, it's about the size of a fist. It's hot, sharp. It feels like pointy. Uh, it radiates up into my heart. It pushes into my back. That's that's where my alarm is for me. Now, some people have different alarms. You know, I, I have a um, a patient that I deal with that had a very narcissistic and demanding mother, and she feels one of her alarms in her throat because she could never really tell her mother how she felt. And then she has this other thing with that they didn't have enough food when they were younger. So she has this other alarm in her belly when she thinks of not having enough to eat. So some people have it in one place. Some people, it all seems to, to conglomerate in one place like me. And other people, it'll be in a, in a number of different places in their body too. Some people will also say, I feel the alarm all over. And usually those people, after I talk to them for a while and we sort of go into the the sort of nuts and bolts of, of what their trauma is, it'll usually find out like it localizes in one or maybe two places. But I, I, about half the people will have it in just one place and about the other half will have it in, in two places or more. Got it. Yeah. Let's now talk about the ego. Okay. How the ego is related to anxiety? Why does ego want so much to keep us anxious? 
Well, the ego is related to the amygdala. So the amygdala is a part of our brain. We have two. We have one on the left side of the brain, one on the right. And the amygdala really reacts to anything that's ever hurt us in the past. So for an example, if you were bitten by a dog as a child, maybe even a young child, maybe you don't even remember being bitten by a dog, but you have this fear of dogs. So the amygdala will encode that fear. It will, it will take that picture of a dog and it will tell your brain in a way, anytime we see a dog, there's going to be trouble. So we'll have to be protected, protect ourselves from that. So the ego will step in and say, someone says, Hey, I'm going to a dog show next week. Do you want to come with me? And no matter how much you like this person, it's like, no, I don't want to go to a dog show. I, 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 I can't explain why, but I don't want to go to a dog show because I don't like dogs. And it's because we have these traumas that happen to us when we're very young that the amygdala takes and they encode. And then the ego takes those old traumas, you know, or the other thing is talking in front of a group, say you're, you know, in grade four and you're doing show and tell and you drop something or you say something silly and everyone laughs at you. Another trigger, your amygdala will say, Hey, we're never going to speak in front of people again. And every time, you know, you have to do a talk for uh, your company or whatever, you freak out because when you were nine years old, you had a bad experience. So the ego and the amygdala kind of react together and say, we're never going to let you do anything that hurt you in the past. Now, the problem with that is we never, we can't ever grow. You know, if you're afraid of public speaking, um, and you, your job is public speaking, you're going to have a real difficult time with that. So it's really understanding how the amygdala works with the ego. Cause the ego is just trying to protect you. It's not bad. It's just basically saying that experience hurt us. We will never, ever do that again. And if you try and do that again, I will make sure that your body goes nuts. So it's kind of protection. It is protection. Yeah. But it's overprotection. I, I imagine, you know, sometimes I'll explain people, it's like an overprotective mother, like a mother that won't let their child go to the playground because they might mm -hmm. fall off the swing or they might do something, you know, they, they, they can't, or they might get kidnapped. So the, the overprotective mother is like, no, no, you can't do this stuff because this might happen. The ego is the same way. Got it. And why do we so often start to take uh, the ego based as you say, as you call them jobs? like Jay for judgment. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So what I think happens is that when we're younger, we experience a trauma that's too much for us to bear. You know, if we're five years old and our parents get divorced or, you know, something happens to us and, and we can't handle that in our conscious mind as children. So we stuff it down into the unconscious mind and the body is a representation of the unconscious mind. So say your parents got divorced when you were five, you can't handle that as a kid. So you push it down into the unconscious and then it gets pushed into your body from there. So whenever you, you see a TV show where there's divorce or, or there's something that um, reminds you of that particular thing, your body goes nuts again and it just creates this pattern in your system that you don't wanna do this ever again. So you don't, you just avoid that. So your life becomes more narrow and more narrow and more narrow because you start avoiding the things that your ego says we can't do. And then that just creates more anxiety because you don't feel like you're living your life. You don't feel like you're moving anywhere. I don't know if that answered your question. I can't remember what the question was originally, but. The question was about the jabs that we take. Like oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I, so yeah. yeah. So what happens is, so when, when we push those those things down, we push the trauma down into the unconscious, then we have to do something to protect ourselves. So 
we start splitting from ourselves when we're younger uh, because we look at these parts that hold the pain from, say, our parents' divorce. We don't want to deal with them, so we push them away. And and that creates a split inside of us. And that split inside of us creates a tremendous amount of alarm. So that alarm is the start of that inner critic, which basically that split that we get from the inside of us because we're not seen, heard, protected, and loved by our parents, that split, we start directing it towards ourselves. So we we take jabs at ourselves. So basically it's judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. So when we split from ourselves as children, we start judging ourselves. We start abandoning from ourselves. We start blaming ourselves and shaming ourselves as children. And it's very difficult to uh, get a psyche that is calm and and safe when we're always poking jabs at ourselves. So that's why I, that's why I came up with the acronym jabs because it it really does sort of encapsulate the inner critic and how that critic inside of us keeps us separate from ourselves and when we're separate from ourselves we just can't heal. And now let's let's get very practical about the steps somebody that is now suffering from anxiety can take in order to heal. Sure. Let's say that I'm now a person that is suffering. What can I do right now? Well, it's basically find your alarm in your system. So rather than when you're feeling anxious or alarmed, don't go into your head because your head's not going to give you the, it's not going to help you. It's just going to give you more of the problem. That's the funny thing about uh, anxiety is that your mind will tell you that it has the solution when all it has is more of the problem. Because if anxiety is a problem of overthinking and your mind tells you, hey, think all these things and you'll feel better and you don't, you're just trying to create a problem of overthinking with more thinking. So it doesn't work. So what you have to do is instead of going into your head, go into your body. And the next time you feel alarmed or afraid, go, where do I feel this in my body? And really scan. And typically it'll show up in the center, in the midline of the body, but it can show up anywhere. And really see if there's an energy, you know, or pressure or pain that shows up. A lot of people will show up in their heart area or their solar plexus like me or their throat. And just and then I get people to drill down into it. Like, does it have a temperature? Does it have a, a like, is it, is it a pain or a pressure? Um, how big is it? Does it radiate anywhere? Does it have any sensations, emotions, images, or memories associated with this alarm? And then the more we drill down into it, the more we're getting into that sort of deeper parts of our nervous system and our brain that hold the trauma in the first place. So again, when we talk about it, we don't really get into that deeper place where this, this trauma is stored. But when we feel, we can actually get into the same place where this trauma is. And when we feel it, we can change it with a feeling. We can't really change this feeling of anxiety or alarm with, a, with thinking. We have to change it from a feeling level. So put your hand over that area. You know, Really see if you can find the younger version of yourself, because I do believe that alarm is a remnant of the younger version of you that was hurt and there wasn't a parent around. There wasn't someone there to help them, to see them through it and to make sure that they're okay. So it's up to you now to find that child through your alarm and reassure them that they are seen, heard, loved, and protected. Now, that was a very short version of how I work with people, but it's important to understand that that's the main thing is that when we get alarmed as children, we store that in our body. And part of us stays locked in that 
place for the rest of our lives. So if we can find it in our body and then connect with it with self-touch or breathing into the area or just paying attention to it in general, because that's all the child in us wants is, is to be paid attention to and loved. And typically what we do when we feel the alarm is we push the alarm away or we go up, up into our heads because if we go up in our heads and start worrying and ruminating and all, we, we can avoid the pain that's down in our body. So I think that's the reason why a lot of people get, get sucked into worries that they can't get out of is because they don't want to go back down into their body because that's where the old trauma is. That's where the, mm -hmm. the old pain is. So we get, and we, and our brain has to develop more elaborate worries and, and things that scare us to keep us in our head. So we don't make a mistake and fall back down into our body again, which is what I believe why worry gets worse and worse and worse as we get older. Mm -hmm. And why taking care of this inner child within ourselves, it's such an important part of the healing journey. Yeah, because that's that's basically where the where the pain is. You know, it's that's where most people, your brain, 80% of your brain developments in the first five years. So if you had a lot of trauma in the first five years, that's where we have to direct your healing is towards that younger version of you go back and find that child. And sometimes I'll say to people, like find a picture of yourself when you were young and then really try and connect. I mean, I have this picture on my own little phone of me when I was, uh, you know, I was three or four years old. That's a old good here. idea. That's a very good yeah. idea. Yeah. So I just stay connected. To, uh, one of my podcasts I did recently was um, about Peter Gabriel's song, which is In Your Eyes, which I believe he's speaking to that child. If you listen to the lyrics, and it's something that I listen to every morning, and I look at that picture, and I just really connect with that younger version of myself. And it's really important because it takes a while. This is the other thing is it takes a while because that child has been ignored by you for so long that they feel futile. They feel like there's there's no one there that sees them, hears them, loves them, and protects them. So they don't believe right away when you start trying to connect with them as adult you, often they'll sort of resist because they don't trust you right away. And the other thing is the adult doesn't really want to go back into the child because that's where all the pain is. So there's that initial conflict, but it's really the only place that, that allows you to really heal. There are other things, you know, talk therapy, I think is very valuable. I think it's very helpful to help understand what happens, but because it doesn't actually access the real root cause of the problem, which is in the deeper structures of our nervous system, which we only access with feeling, it doesn't really change much. It'll make you feel better in the short term but it doesn't really change much in the long term and that's why i believe that people you know are in in talk therapy for 5 10 15 20 years with anxiety and they're not getting a lot better it's helping them a little bit but they're not healing they're coping but they're not healing and is complete healing possible because sometimes i can tell you like, like yeah. a person who has been through that it feels like there is no way out yeah it feels like it's it will be forever and I'm sure that a lot of people maybe who are watching or listening to us right now and suffering with that feel the same way. Yes. Yeah. It, it just, so please tell us, is there a complete healing? Well, there's, we, we're always going to have anxiety in our lives. I mean, anxiety about your kids, anxiety about your career, anxiety about money, like anxiety is normal for sure. But pathological anxiety you can heal from. And I think a lot of it is just realizing that there is this alarm state in your body and that is your younger self and connecting with that and staying with that alarm in your body and avoiding the compulsive need to go into your head and worry. 
I think that's one of the biggest tips that I can give people is when you're feeling anxious, your mind isn't going to help you. Your mind is just going to make you worse, but your mind will tell you that they have the answer, but they don't. Mm -hmm. The only answer is to actually stay with that feeling, even if it hurts. And it does hurt when you first start getting used to that, that alarm sensation in your body. It does hurt. You've got to stay, but you have to stay with it. You have to show that sensation that, that you will see them, hear them, love them and protect them. And then over the course of time, that child in us starts to trust us. So do you heal? Like I'm a million times better than I was even five years ago. But do I still have anxiety? Yeah, I still have anxiety because anxiety is a normal part of life. Now, I don't have pathological anxiety anymore, you know, that because we make it worse for ourselves. We have this alarm in our body to start with. And then we create all these alarming thoughts in our mind because the mind is just a compulsive meaning making make sense machine. So when the mind detects this painful alarm in the body, it makes painful alarming stories in the mind, which of course makes the alarm in the body worse, which makes the stories worse. So we get caught in what I call this alarm anxiety cycle. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest thing we can do to heal is to stay with the alarm and just really stay out of our minds because going into sensation, and we were talking about this at the start of the little talk we had today, sensation keeps you in the present moment. Worries are always about the future. Alarm is always about the pain of the past, but you, if you can bring yourself into the present moment with sensation without having to explain it, and that's one of my mantras that I do um, in one of my meditations is I have this thing called sensation without explanation. So when you're alarmed or you're, you're in pain, you're anxious, feel it, allow yourself to feel it in your body, but don't allow yourself to go up and, and try and fix it with your mind because you're just going to make it worse. So if the problem's here in my body and I'm directing all my attention up here in my mind, if this is where the source of the problem is, this is never going to get healed because every time this comes up, this comes up and this takes me away from this. So this never changes. So the alarm never changes. So that's why you have to go into the alarm and learn how to stay with it and learn how to acclimatize to it. And in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, Basically, that's what Bessel van der Kolk is saying. We said, we're, we're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. We're teaching them how to acclimatize that sensation in their body so they don't have to compulsively add a whole bunch of worries to it. And then what happens is you break the alarm anxiety cycle when you do that. And when you break the cycle, you can start seeing that there is a way to heal it. And then once you start seeing that there is a way to healing, a lot of that fear that this is never going to end goes away. I love that. And I so much believe that anxiety is not by any means a life sentence. It's not. Uh, after taking all the healing steps that you have mentioned, and also like going to therapy, and like when we try to stay more into the now, now moment, I believe we can completely heal the anxiety. And it's like when we stay in the now moment, I believe we also have to strengthen our faith that whatever comes on our ways yeah it will be always for our highest good that really yeah. ought to help me no matter what is this yeah and i think that's true to some extent there there is a saying that says things don't happen to you they happen for you now it's it's a little you know it's a little um kind of pollyanna it's a little like you know positive thinking and that kind of thing but if you look at it that way, if you look at that your challenges are opportunities for growth, it's a lot easier on your brain system. You know, you don't fall into the victim mentality of 
um, cortisol and epinephrine telling you that the world is going to come to an end. So when you lean into what scares you, you your brain actually starts secreting dopamine and uh, endogenous opioids, our own brain's natural morphine that that allows you to go in and face your fear. But as soon as you move away from your fear, the chemicals in your body will start being secreted that tells you that there's a threat. But if you lean into what scares you, the chemicals in your body will help you deal with that threat. So whatever whatever your brain decides to do, your body and your chemicals will support you. If you if you decide to face your fears and go right at them, your your brain will support you doing that. If you decide that this is too much for you and you're afraid, your brain will make you more afraid. Yes, exactly. And now let's talk about a little bit more again about uh, amygdala. What is that part of the brain responsible for? Can you emphasize that once again? Well, the amygdala, we have two of them. We have the left and right, and they are commonly called the fear center of the brain, which isn't totally accurate. The amygdala will react to novelty as well. So anything that's new in your environment, the amygdala will look at. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Like if we're 60,000 years ago and we're walking through the forest or whatever, and we see something that's kind of waving in the distance or, or, or a bush that doesn't look like it's quite normal, you know, that's important. So the amygdala will kind of say, hey, this is new, direct your attention to this, which makes sense. But the amygdala also is something that that encodes anything that's ever hurt you. So if you were bitten by a dog, like I said, or you had a bad experience speaking in front of people, the amygdala will encode that as well. And when anything that's even close to that same stimulus comes up, your amygdala will fire into action and it will send your body into fight or flight. It says, hey, this hurt us in the past. We should be careful about this. So the amygdala is really kind of like a smoke detector. It's kind of like an early warning system for our, our mind and body that tells us, hey, this is something that could hurt us. And that's really one of its main, main jobs is to do that. And you know, if you spend a lot of time in fear and worry, your amygdala gets a little bigger. Not always, but it does tend to. So the amygdala really helps you mod- moderate fear. And the amygdala is the other thing that will encode and couple something together. So a lot of people in the United States knew exactly where they were at 9-11. You know, because the amygdala is in there and it couples things together. There's a funny story about, um, I'm not sure how true this is, but it's an interesting story about a boy who received a teddy bear that he loved for Christmas and his mother held it up for him and he ran towards the teddy bear and then he fell and smacked his face. And ever since then, he's been afraid of teddy bears. So it's funny. And the amygdala is involved. The amygdala is what coupled, you know, teddy bears with fear. Mm-hmm. And and the amygdala couples, so same thing, the, the amygdala couples dogs with fear if you've been bitten by a dog. It couples public speaking with fear if you've been had a bad experience public speaking. So it, the amygdala is one of those things that that starts to look in your environment for things that are similar. So if, say, you know, you were beaten by your dad as a child and he would he would, you know, take off his belt to hit you, when someone takes off their belt, that can be a trigger for the same thing. So it's funny how the amygdala works too, and it, it it's a fairly, fairly dumb structure in a way. Is it doesn't it doesn't judge? Oh, this is silly. This is just a kitten. You know, this isn't going to hurt us. It it says it picks up a, a picture of whatever this thing is that was associated with our pain in the past, and whenever we see that again, 
it'll fire our body into fight or flight. So amygdala doesn't recognize past, now moment. It just, there is no time there involved. Well, that's, a, yeah, the amygdala doesn't have a, a real sense of time. There's some, there's a, a structure in our brains called the hippocampus. Now the hippocampus is something that, that does kind of time date stamp our memories. So if say, um, you know, we were hit by our mom at a shopping mall and everyone saw, um, so the amygdala will encode that memory in, in our system. And so will the hippocampus. But if the hippocampus is paralyzed and, and often what happens is when we get stressed, cortisol and epinephrine will paralyze this part of our brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus kind of time date stamps that memory. So when it comes back into our awareness, the hippocampus has made it so that we know that, oh, that, that happened in the past. That's not, that was when I was, you know, 12 years old and we were at the mall. I, I know that's not still happening, but if the hippocampus gets paralyzed, which it does with stress chemicals, then we get this amygdala only processing and the amygdala has no sense of time. So when we feel vulnerable, we'll go back into that same exact feeling that we had when we were embarrassed or hit by our mother in the mall. So it doesn't feel like it's coming from the past. It feels like it's still happening. And that's that's one of the things about the amygdala that makes healing from anxiety quite difficult. Mm -hmm. I think you you was describing amygdala hijack in the in the end, but let's let's go into that in a sure. while. Before that, I want to tell one story of mine. Okay. So I I love traveling by plane. That was okay. my thing zero anxiety i had zero anxiety i loved it and then suddenly before a year and a half maybe i had three i would say very dangerous flights to that extent that some people around me were shouting okay uh, and that was the sequence it's not only one three okay. three of them okay. and i remember the first flight so the fourth one after those three it was a flight from greece to germany and it's like a okay. three hours flight. Doctor us, it was like 30 hours for me. Mm -hmm. I was in such a amygdala hijack or whatever it's called. Yeah. I was like, I was trying to, to write as I love writing. It didn't work. Listen to music. It didn't work. Uh, reading. It didn't work. I went to the toilet so many times to distract myself. Yeah. Uh, just to push the emergency button in the toilet. You know, because there are yeah. there are no accidents in the world. Sure. I came back to my play, uh, to my uh, seat, and I was like, I would talk to the guy next to me, and you know, from those moments when you are desperately needing somebody to talk to, and people are just emotional, sure. unavailable, and I'm like, where are you from? Munich. Yeah. And he's like, I didn't, I couldn't find a way out. It was just like a silence, suffering. And yeah. with all my knowledge, with all I have been through, and I, I can say nowadays I found such a peace, so I can claim that somebody can really heal fully anxiety. But like, what was that? I mean, what, what I didn't Ooh. do, what, yeah. probably I could take a step that I wasn't aware of so that I can calm myself down. Well, then you have to use your body. You know, at, at that point, like you have, you can't sort of think your way out of that feeling. So, so you'd go into sort of breathing patterns would be one thing. There's something called the physiological sigh, which is two quick sniffs in through your nose 
and then a long, slow uh, breath out through your mouth. So this is these are one of the times that you really have to go into your body. And this is stuff that you need to practice. You know, you can't just expect, you know, when you go, when you have that, that huge of a trigger, you can't just expect, okay, well, I get on the plane, I'll freak out, I'll just breathe properly, because that may not work. But if you practice every day, taking five or 10 minutes to do that little thing where you and then you relax and you train yourself, this is what I do to calm myself down, when you actually need it, it will be there for you. So breathing will help you in the moment, but the more you can practice breath, and then the other thing is finding, you know, where you felt the alarm in your system. Like if we go back, can I take you into that place of the the plane again, just for a second? Or is that too much? I guess it's too much. It was really... Yeah, yes. no, I, yeah. And it's important that you say that. So it's good. So what I would do uh, with you, if I was working with you is that we would slowly kind of uh, create a safe place for you. We would take you into that place of the, of the plane of being actually in there and then finding in your body, like where that would show up, like where your alarm is. And then we would put your hand over it. We get you to breathe into it. Uh, you know, smell some essential oils, maybe something that would just calm your system down while that part of your body is full of alarm. And then we teach you that when you feel that alarm, you don't have to freak out anymore. It's mm -hmm. actually quite safe. You're sitting in your house or you're lying in your bed and you're still safe. Um, but your brain doesn't know that. So your brain is trying to protect you by saying we have to get out of here. But if if you're on a plane, there is no way out. So it just, exactly. it, you're, you're kind of stuck there. So it's important to practice these things before you need them, you know? So the little thing that I say to people is like, you know, if I said uh, in three months and I'm, I'm going to, you know, bring you to Canada, I'm going to take you to the basketball court. And if you make two foul shots, free throws out of 10, I'm going to give you $5 million. Now, would you start practicing basketball the day before? No, you you start practicing every day so that when you came to that particular place that you would already know that you had this practice already that you can call on. So often people won't do the day-to-day -day work for their anxiety and they just expect that breathing is going to help them. And it will help a little bit, but it's not going to help you to a significant extent. The more you can practice that getting into your body and feeling safe in your body, the more likely that you'll be able to bring it online when you really need it, like when you take your next plane trip. Mm -hmm. And what I realized that with every flight, it gets better and better. So why yeah. why is that? Because your amygdala does get used to things after a while. It's 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 something called systematic desensitization, and it's it's what they use for people who are say afraid of elevators. So if someone's afraid of an elevator, and you go into therapy, sometimes they'll show you a picture of an elevator. And then they'll get you to imagine that you're walking towards an elevator. And then they just sort of slowly get you into this particular situation. And then they get you on the elevator and then you go up and down the elevator 10, 20, 30 times. And it teaches the brain, okay, this is actually safe. Mm -hmm. So, but if that person has a, a, an issue with the elevator while they're in that therapy, it can be really damaging because when you're starting to heal, that's the most vulnerable time in your brain. So if say you went on to another plane trip now and had another one of those experiences, a lot of turbulence, a lot of 
fear, it can bring you right back to that same old place again. So the more you experience the plane, uh, traveling in a plane that's safe, the more your amygdala kind of goes, okay, you know, we've done this a few times. It's actually not that bad. Let's imagine that something very dangerous is happening to us. Is there a way for us to react in this moment so that further on, we we can protect ourselves from getting anxious about such a situation? Well, it depends on how what you're talking about, Diana. Like, if, is it, you know, if, if it's something that's really dangerous, you have to get yourself out of that situation, basically, you know? So, so let's but say it, the situation with the airplane. Okay, yeah. So basically what you can do is every day spend five or 10 minutes imagining yourself sitting in that seat, imagining the plane shaking and then doing that breath exercise, you know, make sure that you make your exhalation longer than your inhalation. Focus on the fact that your muscles are relaxed. Maybe breathe in some lavender or chamomile, something that sort of calms your, calms your breath, calms your, your nervous system while you're thinking about this particular plane trip that will help you when you actually get on the plane that you've practiced this so many times that it doesn't bother you so much anymore and also you feel more empowered because you know that you have something in your system that will help you i used to have people walk around with a, a tablet of um like anxiety medication in their pocket and they never needed to use it all they needed to know is that they had it. So if things started to get out of control, they could take it. So that's the thing. That's the thing about our mind is that if we know that we have a practice that will keep us safe and keep us calm, we'll feel so much better. But if we don't have anything, if we feel like we're just lost, which is again, what happened to us as children, typically, you know, children don't have a lot of agency in the world. If your parents a nut or an alcoholic or whatever, you don't have any power against that. So you pretty much have to endure it. But we teach ourselves as adults that there is things that we can do about our anxiety and we can practice them so that we get in tune with our body. We stay focused in sensation and our body and relaxing our body every day so that when we do need it, when we go on a plane trip, when we're making having a tough conversation with someone, that we have something that we can do that we've trained ourselves to calm our body. But most of us don't do it. That's yeah. That's why anxiety becomes such a problem for people. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's it's absolutely correct. And as a last question, what is the good thing about anxiety? There should be something good about anxiety. Yeah. What is, well, I what think is it, the best thing yeah. about anxiety? I think that it makes you think in a different way. I think a lot of the people that I see with anxiety are quite intelligent and quite creative and quite artistic. So I see anxiety and, and, and artistic temperament go together. So creativity and anxiety tend to go together. Now, if the, if the anxiety gets too high, the creativity shuts down. But I think initially, anxious people tend to be quite creative. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things about anxiety is it does make us think in very different ways. Because if you grow up in a, a secure, attached environment with your parents, you look at the world in quite a one-dimensional way, like the world's full of love, I'm safe, whatever. But if you go up in an environment where there is some danger, you learn a bunch of different strategies and you yeah. think in very different ways. Okay, well, if this happens, I'm going to go to this door. And if that, if that door is blocked, then I'm going to go to the window. So you start thinking this sort of deductive reasoning because we think so well, so much, because that's what anxiety people do is they think all the time. So we actually get very good at thinking. 
So I think that anxiety in a way raises your level of intelligence because you're always thinking. Now you you also have to give your body a rest though. That's the problem. That's that's where we start burning out. So I think anxiety definitely has its positive features. And if you look at a lot of people who are artistic, you know, who do things, who are actors and creators, a lot of them struggle with anxiety. And as an really an end of this episode, I play a very quick game with my with my guests. I start okay. sentence and then I would love you to finish this sentence just okay. with few words. Just with few okay. words, but it should be one sentence. And whatever okay. comes to your mind very quickly without thinking. But yeah, okay. you got you got the idea? I got All it. Right. Okay, so let's go. Anxiety taught me that. Uh, I'm a sensitive, loving person. I wish I could I could know earlier that anxiety was more to do with the alarm in my body than the thoughts of my mind. People are anxious because they're separated from themselves. They're separated from the child in them. Yeah. I'm a doctor, psychologist, stand-up comedian, yoga teacher by titles, and my truest self is Loving and healing, helping other people, you know, getting connected to themselves so that they can have lo more loving care and connection in their own relationships. Conventional medicine is? Great for some things and not so good for others and very narrow-minded when it comes to um, mental illness. The one thing that I want to say uh, to all the people who are suffering from anxiety is? There is help. You just need to you just need to find the right place, which is basically looking into your body and stop doing extensive therapy with your mind because your mind is not going to heal you. You have to go into your body. Your body is the place where we heal. And the last one, I wish to all the people watching us or listening to us right now. Oh, would understand that that they can heal if they if they do the right things, if they focus on this alarm in their body rather than constantly trying to believe their thoughts. Thank you very much again, Thanks, yeah. once again, Dr. Kennedy, for co-creating with me and sharing this space with me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been lovely talking with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for spending time with me and my guests. Don't forget to come more often to the now moment. It's the only place where peace exists. Have faith and trust that whatever is coming on your way will always be for your highest good. Thank you, and I'll meet you in the next episode. Thanks for watching. I hope this episode made a difference in your life. Stay tuned for the next one. Shift the mind.